Hello everyone and welcome to the Mimetic Exegete podcast. I'm your host, Simon Skidmore. In this season, we've been working our way through the book of Genesis and today we will look at chapters 11 and 12. So far, we've traced the history of Israel through Adam, Seth, Noah and Shem. You may have noticed that the story starts in a good land, the Garden of Eden, but moves continually eastward. Adam and Eve plant a new community in the east when they are expelled from their garden and Cain moves further eastward from the presence of the Lord. This is significant because this movement mirrors the journey of ancient Israel from the good land of Canaan eastward into exile in Babylon. Now we pick up the story in the land of Shinar, that is Babylon, in chapter 11. Let's read now from verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the land. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and we will confuse their language, so they may not understand each other's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the land, and they left off their building of the city. Therefore, its name was called Babylon, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Notice that the people want to make a name for themselves, lest they be dispersed over the entire face of the land, which ironically is what happens at the end of this story. You may recall that back in chapter 6, we were told that the sons of God had relations with the daughters of man. And this is where the mighty men of renown, literally men of a name, came from. In chapter 10, verses 8 to 10, we are told that Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on the land to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalneh in the land of Shinar. Now in chapter 11, we find ourselves in the land of Shinar, Nimrod's kingdom, with a group of people who want to make a name for themselves. In other words, they all want to be men of renown like Nimrod, their mighty ancestor who established their community in Shinar many years earlier. The people want to be remembered and respected by those who would come after them. Fame and renown became the desired object for which these people were striving. Yet, their efforts were frustrated when the Lord confuses their language. The language of confusion here, along with a lack of differentiation, flagged by the comment that all of the people in the land spoke the same language, suggests a mimetic crisis. 
However, this crisis did not spell the end for humanity as the survivors spread out across the land to avoid bloodshed. In so doing, each new tribe places distance between themselves and the other tribes who occupied different territories. Although the rivalry remains amongst these tribes, they enjoy an uneasy and tenuous peace as long as everybody keeps their distance. As the final verse tells us, this narrative is an origin story which recounts the genesis of a rival nation. While the city did receive a name, it was not the name the people wanted. As a result of the mimetic crisis, they were scattered and ultimately called Babel, which is the Hebrew name for Babylon. For some reason, most English translations just transliterate the word Babel, but it's actually Babylon when translated into English. And we get this folk etymology from the text where the writer tells us that they were called Babel or Babylon because everyone's language was confused. So it's the writer's way of saying this is why they got this name. This is how it happened because there was confusion when all these languages muddled up. When read through the eyes of an ancient Israelite, this story recounts the destruction of their oppressors, the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonian Empire was a fierce religious and military machine. Like most ancient peoples, the Babylonians attributed their military success to their gods. Scholars have noted that the tower here, which the people are building in this narrative, may be a ziggurat, which was a tall Babylonian temple with a stepped pyramid-like structure. Essentially, the ziggurat was a man-made mountain designed so that the people could seek the favor of the gods by approaching their realm in the sky and offering sacrifices. Such a temple could prove extremely dangerous, especially for the people of Israel, if it helped the Babylonians curry favor with their gods. Within the minds of the ancient Near Eastern peoples, this new ziggurat, this new temple, would help the Babylonians continue their dominance of the ancient Near East, including their dominance over the people of Israel. When viewed within this ancient context, we see now why the Lord is concerned that the Babylonians are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. The Lord is concerned that the Babylonians have become unstoppable as they seek to make a name for themselves by destroying other peoples and civilizations. For the sake of the other peoples living upon the land, the Lord confuses their speech and language and brings a surprising end to Israel's seemingly indomitable foe. For Israel living in exile, this story sounds a note of hope, even when things seem completely hopeless. The verses that follow recount the genealogy of Abram and his brothers. Abram, who becomes Israel, is one of those people whose language is confused as he makes his way out of Babylon to start his journey. In verse 31, we are told that Terah 
took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran his grandson and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Like Adam and Eve in the garden narrative, Abraham has been forced to leave his home and establish a new community which ultimately becomes the people of Israel. Reading on now from chapter 12 verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the land shall be blessed. While Adam and Eve are sent from the garden with a curse, Abram is sent away from his community with the promise of blessing. Abram leaves behind his community in Babylon, which was built upon military violence to begin his own community. He has promised that he will be a great nation and that his name will be great. Remember, these were the things that the people building the tower in chapter 11 desired. This was their desired object over which they engaged in mimetic rivalry. The whole community became one as they sought to become a great nation and to make a name for themselves. This rivalry precipitated a mimetic crisis which resulted in the breakdown of the entire community as everyone was scattered over the face of the land. This is the world which Abraham now finds himself in, a world characterized by rivalry and violence as each tribe seeks to assert its dominance over the other. Within this new tribal landscape, the Lord addresses Abram and challenges him to seek something more. Abram is commanded to go, leave everything he's ever known and pursue a life without mimetic rivalry. Ironically, it is through this life that Abraham will be blessed and become a famous great nation. Only by stepping off the mimetic treadmill and refusing to engage in mimetic rivalry with others will Abram achieve the very things over which everyone else is fighting. The tribal thinking in which Abraham has been immersed all his life is simply not working. The Lord is inviting Abraham to reimagine a life without mimetic rivalry, but to do so, he must leave everything he's ever known behind. Note also that these verses employ the same blessing and curse language we saw in the last podcast. Those who belittle Abram in an attempt to make their own name great are caught in a game of mimetic rivalry which will ultimately see their own rivalry mirrored back upon them. This is the curse which the Lord pronounces upon those who engage in mimetic rivalry with Abram. Alternatively, those who imitate and praise Abram's peaceful lifestyle will be blessed in that this blessing will be mirrored back upon them by others. The idea appears to be that we will always imitate one another. It's just what humans do. 
With that in mind, we have some sort of control over the way others treat us. If we are a blessing to others, they are more likely to be a blessing to us. On the other hand, if we curse and malign others, then we will suffer in a similar manner. This is the substance of the golden rule. Treat others the same way you want yourself to be treated. Let's read on now from verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot's brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land at Shechem to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Abram sets out for the land of Canaan, which ultimately becomes the home of his descendants, the people of Israel. As Abram journeys through the land, he sets up altars because a new community requires a new type of God and a new type of worship. The Lord, the God of Abraham, is a God of peace, unlike the gods of military violence which Abram left behind in Babylon. This new God requires new places and new ways of worship. So Abram must erect new altars throughout the land. In so doing, Abram is creating a new social order, free from mimetic rivalry, perpetuated by his old community and the gods of Babylon. Reading on now from verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to live there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So say you are my sister, that it might go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake he dealt well with Abraham. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abraham's wife. So Pharaoh called Abraham and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say, she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh made orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Later on in Exodus, we will see that severe famine in the land of Canaan also forces Israel to find sanctuary in Egypt. Abraham's story is Israel's story, but for now, 
Let's focus on Abram and Sarai's experience. In the eyes of Abram, his wife Sarai is very beautiful. The Egyptians imitate Abram's appreciation for his wife, which leads Pharaoh to desire her also and take her to live with him in the palace. Abram knows this is how it's going to go down and he doesn't want to become an object or a rival to Pharaoh as they compete for possession over Sarai. So he lies to Pharaoh, claiming that Sarai is his sister and allows Pharaoh to take her. Now many preachers criticize Abram's actions in this story, claiming that his actions demonstrate a lack of faith. But Abram is lauded as a great hero of the faith in both the early Jewish and Christian traditions. Could there be something praiseworthy also about Abram's actions in this story? From a mimetic perspective, this story may be reframed as recounting Abram's attempt to avoid mimetic conflict with Pharaoh. In this way, Abram remains faithful to the Lord's call to leave his world behind, to pursue a life free from mimetic rivalry. Abram is willing to pursue this life, even if it means laying aside his closest remaining relationship and most prized possession, his wife, Sarai. Even though Abram refuses to become involved in mimetic rivalry over his wife, Sarai, the rest of Egypt becomes infatuated with her beauty, which causes another mimetic crisis. Sarai becomes the desired object over which the Egyptian princes and pharaohs strive as they imitate each other's desire for her and engage in mimetic rivalry with one another. We are told that Pharaoh and his house were afflicted with great plagues, which again suggests a mimetic crisis in Pharaoh's household. Pharaoh brings an end to this crisis by scapegoating Abram and Sarai, sending them both away from his presence. With the desired object removed, their rivalry is vented upon their scapegoats. Pharaoh's household may resume life as normal. But Abram and Sarai must leave to start a life elsewhere. This is also Israel's story in the book of Exodus as Pharaoh sends them out from Egypt to begin their journey towards peace and blessing in a new land. Thanks again for joining me on the Mimetic Exegete podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you may do so on the Mimetic Exegete Facebook group. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.